Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Tech.eu podcast. I'm Roxanne Varza, and I'm here with Tech.eu editor Robin Waters. Hi, Robin. Bonjour, Roxanne. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this week we have a great lineup of topics, including Peter Thiel has invested in a Danish comparison platform, Samlino.dk. We have UK-based Songkick, who has raised a 15 million round. Central and Eastern European funding for startups is on the rise. Robin, you had a chance to catch up with Quentin Nickman, co-founder of Franco-Belgian startup studio called eFounders. So we'll take a listen to that. And finally, we'll review the European names that made the Wired Global 100 list. So let's jump right in with Peter Thiel's investment into Denmark-based Samlino. I have to say that I'm really surprised because this company raised $22 million dollars They have really high-profile investors like Peter Thiel, and there's hardly any information on the deal in English, uh, which just seems insane to me. So the company develops an online comparison site. Uh, it's well on its way to becoming the largest one in Denmark. The round, which was $115 million in Danish kroner, includes other heavyweight Danish investors like Lars Seer Christensen, who's the former CEO of Saxo Bank. And Horleif Krarup, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who's involved in Nordic Capital. The company founded in 2014 helps consumers compare different insurance, financial, and telecommunications products. The site currently has roughly half a million users, which is probably a really high number if you, if you consider Denmark's relatively small population. And it seems the company may also have other big name investors or people linked to big name investors like Mark Pincus of Zynga, also seems that there is a fund that is kind of connected to Lika Shing. It's unclear whether or not they actually participated in this round in, in particular. Yes, it definitely is a bit of an odd one. So first of all, I would say that these price comparison portals have been around for, I would almost say, since the down of the commercial internet. I've been seeing a lot of these even for 15 years ago. So, so it's sort of weird to see a company like this get founded in 2014 and funded by such heavy hitters in 2016. Secondly, yes, for sure, the lack of media attention is a little bit weird. I guess we'll have to blame it on the end of the summer vacation period, but also Probably because the company is only, only operating in Denmark. The website's only available in Danish. So, so it's a company that I'd never heard of before either. So there might be a little bit of a you know, lack of knowledge uh, of reporters in the space about this company. And in fact, I've been reading some of the Danish coverage on this, obviously through Google Translate, but still some publications didn't even mention Peter Thiel's name entirely connected to the funding round for whatever reason. So, so it's worth digging into that at some point. What I also find a little bit confusing about the funding round is that Semlino says on its website that it's part of a global group of price comparison portals called Compare Global Group. I don't know what that means, being part of it, but it seems they have a sort of a revenue sharing agreement somehow. That company operates around the world. I'm talking about Compare. Uh, and it has raised money from the likes of Mark Pincus, Async Company, which also backed um, companies like Uber and TransferWise um, and Pacific Century Group. So that's Li Keqing's son. Uh, so those are pretty much the same investors that were mentioned in connection to the, the funding round in Samlino. So I would actually love to get my hands on the actual investment agreements uh, between all of these entities and, and the cap tables of the respective companies just to understand what's actually going on here. 
So maybe some listeners over in Denmark can help us out with getting those documents into our inbox. So and finally, if Peter Thiel has in fact climbed aboard of uh, Sam Lino, it's a pretty notable investment, of course, but it's not that much of a surprise if you look at the fact that he's shown a continued interest in European startups. He's already an investor in Germany. He's backed IM, number 26, ResearchGate. He's an investor in Credit Tech, uh, in Deposit Solutions out of Hamburg. But he's also invested in UK startups in the past, um, including TransferWise and DeepMind. So, you know, he's shown an interest in European startups before, so I wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously not surprised that he's making an investment into a European startup. This particular deal, as you said, uh, comparison portals have been around forever. This one, regardless of whether or not they're part of like a bigger group or like comparison site group, it just seemed like a relatively small project in itself. So um, I do think if we have any listeners in Denmark that would like to enlighten us on what's really going on, uh, we would love that. So now UK-based Songcake has announced it has closed a $15 million round and is expanding further in the US. The startup founded in 2007 has a platform which allows users to track concerts for their favorite artists. This round of funding, which was raised with Access Industries, brings the startup's funding to over $60 million. Uh, New York-based Access Industries, for anyone who doesn't know, is also an investor in Rocket Internet. Songkick, which was actually an early European YC grad, merged earlier this year with artist ticketing service CrowdSurge. I guess that was kind of, in kind of an attempt to rival Ticketmaster. They've actually been able to win over some pretty big name artists like Paul McCartney, Adele, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica. These artists apparently prefer the control that the platform gives them. But earlier this year, Songkick actually lost a legal battle against Ticketmaster over pre-sales to artist fan clubs. So the judge ruling was actually favorable to Ticketmaster and Live Nation. So it's actually just looking at kind of everything that's happening, just like in the Songkick space, seems like a really exciting space to be in. I have to admit, I do like the product, but I haven't really seen it take off that much in Europe. I think in the UK, probably very strong, but in France, it still feels like it's not a well-known brand and they don't have uh, a lot of the concerts that one would expect. People are still turning to a lot more traditional kind of ticketing and concert outlets. Uh, so that's something I wish that we, we could see from Songkick. Yeah, that's true. Come to think of it, I probably have never come across anyone who shared a Songkick link in Belgium for that matter. So, hmm. Uh, but I do like, from, from from my perspective as a reporter, I do like Songkick. I think it's a great European success story. I can't even believe that they've been around for almost a decade. And I was going over your notes. I'm like, wow, that's almost 10 years. But kudos to them. I mean, they've been building a really viable business. Uh, and especially after the merger with CrowdSearch, they've become a, a global player. So they still have some way to go. There's a lot of growth still ahead of them. As you correctly mentioned, they can probably do a lot better when it comes to marketing and rolling out uh, more intensively in other countries. But I'm guessing that's what this funding round is for. I mean, the capital will help them kind of grow and become a bigger name in the space. And, and on a second note, like Access Industries, uh, the main investor in this round, is a really good investor to have on your side in this particular space, especially with the legal battles that you've seen um, with Ticketmaster. Um, so it's a company that knows its way around the space. Uh, they own Warner Music Group, for that matter. Um, and they also hold stakes in businesses um, connected to music like Deezer, and as you correctly mentioned, also in stuff like Rocket Internet and, and Get, who's like one of the major Uber competitors in the world. So, so that's a good investor to have on board. We'll see what the 50 million does to them. I mean, they've already raised, I think, in total more than $60 million. So it's not really that much if you compare it to the total funding that they've raised to date. But I'm guessing it'll help them expand and get the, you know more brand recognition out there. 
Yeah, and it looks like we'll have to pay attention to what happens with regard to Ticketmaster. Maybe we'll see other battles in the future. Now, Central and Eastern European startups are seeing a rise in funding for startups, which is at an all-time high since 2009. This information was published by Invest Europe, which is a Brussels-based nonprofit that seeks to represent Europe's private equity, VC, and infrastructure sectors. So the data that they've released shows that the total investment into the region was $1.6 billion last year, which is 25% growth from the previous year. According to Invest Europe, over 200 companies in the CEE region have received venture capital investment in 2015. That includes 130 startups. So a majority of this money went to Poland, Serbia, Hungary, and Romania, which comprised 85% of the region's total investments. Yes, very interesting numbers. Uh, although it's important to note that the research includes all of private capital so that means private equity and venture capital, so it's not just VC. But still, it's quite a good sign of recovery for the CEE region, uh, it seems. Particularly the fact that 130 startups in the region got private capital investments last year. Um, now, this study from Invest Europe is not just technology startups, so it's a little bit unclear how much of this is really going into this early stage, you know, digital um, and, and hardware companies. Um, but it's definitely a good sign. Then again, if you look at the key chart from the report, um, you can see clearly that investments were actually on the rise uh, from 2005 uh, until 2009 when it hit a peak. But then the global financial crisis put an unfortunate end to that growth. Uh, and then there was a huge drop in 2010. And we're now just seeing some recovery, which is obviously great. Uh, but it's important to note that the 2015 figure still came out lower than even back in 2006, which is a decade ago. So let's hope that the financing trend, the growth um, continues. Uh, it's a no-brainer that there's a ton of talent available and interesting startups operating in Central and Eastern Europe. So let's hope the money keeps flowing. Yeah, and I think obviously um, these different countries that we've mentioned that are seeing the majority of the funding, I can't really say there's too many surprises there, except for Serbia for me uh, was kind of a little bit of a surprise because Poland, Hungary, Romania, I feel like they have, at least in terms of startups, strong ecosystems. Serbian startups I know less about. So if any listeners want to point some startups from the, those different countries our way, that would be wonderful. But now, Robin, you had a chance to catch up with Quentin Nickman, who is the co-founder of Franco-Belgian startup studio eFounders. <laughs> Hey, this is Robin uh, from TechU, and I'm here with Quentin Nickmans from eFounders Startup Studio. Can you briefly explain what eFounders is and what a startup studio is? So eFounders is a startup studio. Uh, it's also called a startup factory or a startup builder. We are focused on building primarily SaaS-based companies, so B2B SaaS. And you're doing that out of Brussels and Paris? Exactly. We've been always active in the two cities and uh, building out of there. And how many people are you now? So the, the, the startup studio itself, the core team is about 15 people. Projects in the building that adds about 20 people. And then if we take all the independent companies, so people that came out of uh, the studio and are building there, about 250 people. Okay, so how long has the studio been around and where did the idea come from to build this type of model? Um, the studio has been created by Thibaut Elzier and myself in 2011. Uh, so it's about five years now uh, that we're in business. And we did a very bootstrap way in just a similar vision of loving to start companies and be very much involved into it. And so whenever you want to be very involved into a company, you either build one company fully and there is, and you stick and remain to, to that one. If you have a profile of, of, of um, interest of liking one industry and wanting to build a different type of project, which is typically 
what Thibault, myself, and the rest of our partners have as a business pleasure and a business um, interest, we try to find out what's the most productive way. And we did learning by doing. And five years ago, you can look into the literature. No one was talking about startup studio or factory. It doesn't exist. So we started in a more bootstrap way, one, two, third company. And then we repetitively learned from all our learnings on how we should uh, work in collaboration, in collaborative entrepreneurship with amazing founders to build the uh, SaaS leaders. Um, this is a question that you probably get too many times, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, how does your model compare to the one from Rocket Internet, which was arguably the most famous startup factory ever? There is a lot of difference. And I think if I need to point them out, the uh, most important one is we have a completely other focus, which is SaaS. The second is that we only want to build independent companies. And therefore, the model is much more entrepreneurial minded. If you want to take these arguments again, it's, uh, it's, it's also SaaS. And SaaS means that you need to build software. It's immediately worthwhile. So it's not geographical marketplace. It's not copycat. You, I mean, we are... When we're building out a solution, it's immediately competitive on the American field or in the Asian field or whatever. So SaaS makes it barrier to entry and technological uh, step, which is we cannot sprout out a company in eight weeks, which is number one. We don't play really geographical markets. Secondly, they're fully independent companies, which means that we don't intend to remain or be service provider or whatever. We just want to give every SaaS idea, project, the most chances to success. And we remain extremely actively involved into the company for a period of about 18 months to two years. And after that, it's completely independent, only run own governance, financed by whatever external community. And so we are not at all in control of these companies, neither their destiny. Can you walk me through how a typical company that's born within eFounders goes from IDE to business to incorporation? to actually being completely independent? Like what needs to happen for that to occur? Let's make it three steps. The first one is ideation. How do we identify ideas? It's internally, it's discussing with people like you. It's within the community. We see trends, we see technological trends and, and, and we apply that to the things we see around. Up to now, most of the topics we've been addressing is horizontal SaaS. It's what is called horizontal SaaS. It's a, a marketing or a translation or, a, or for developers and stuff like that. We might evolve more uh, to vertical SaaS and, and we're investigating that quite well. So that's ideation. It's something where we just need to feel that there is a pain point. And of course, internally, we have some, some people who, who, get, who do the traditional interviews, the whole key learnings we need to have um, and, and, and do. The second stage is in... And once we're really convinced of that, we have a proof of concept, we don't see barriers, we, we still are passionate about the idea. Generally, three months go between the initial idea and then right. make the, the hot atmosphere out of it. If we still feel really passionate about the idea, we, we try to make the magic happen of identifying a co-founder uh, or a bunch of co-founders who feel, feel as passionate as we are um, to start building it with us. And that period, when that starts, is about nine months where we uh, dedicate our efforts to building out the software. During that period, first pilots go on the MVPs and all that stuff. We continue to have a very iterative process to build out the end tool, which after a period of about nine months goes to what we call the minimum sellable product, where the first pilots and users try to pay for a software. So where you, you really know you start to have a model and something that you build that might be valuable if people pay for it. 
And in that stage, when the first paying clients arrive, external investors might come that way if um, the question marks are already quite lifted. It's a period between zero and nine months where we accompany and we define what we call the go-to-market strategy of a SaaS, which is, do we need to adapt pricing? Do we need to identify new channels? Does the software need to be more mature to be able to sell and all that stuff? So typically three stages, ideation, building phase, scaling phase. And as of the end of the building phase of a minimum sellable product, we are ready to incorporate if all the lights are in green. Right, got it. You mentioned external investors. You've raised money as e-founders. Some of your companies have also gone on to raise funding. Uh, how would you describe the relationship between you and the VC industry uh, in Europe and beyond? We basically work with venture capitalists like every other traditional startup works with venture capitalists. We, we don't have any special relationship or shouldn't have any special relationship. We have shares like founders and early stage investor for the, for the two first years. So a business angel and a co-founder, basically. So no rationale to have. And, and for a venture firm or a venture capitalist to invest within the studio, from our experience and discussions, there is a bias for them to do that because it's uh, like investing in a portfolio of holdings of companies from the past and or an insider knowledge or an obligation to yes or no, uh, do the early stage financing or whatever. So, so up to now, it's more with private individuals, business angels, and we're in talks of doing a very nice round with like qualified entrepreneurs to basically always have one line of incentive is uh, to help our companies that are in the studio to succeed. I don't want to ask you who your favorite children are, but um, out of all the companies that you've started within eFounder so far, which ones would you say are the most promising? What, what I've learned over the past is that you, you, you shouldn't say uh, which one it is because it changes probably every six months. Uh, that's venture world. I've been a lot involved in the beginning of a company called Mailjet. Uh, it's not a company completely built out of the studio, but we learn a lot out of it. Uh, and I've been actively involved. So I've got a natural inheritance of liking its involvement. Textmaster is a beauty of a business model. It's a Belgian-based company. Uh, it is extremely well, and um, I do think there is a real huge opportunity to continue to disrupt a very old and uh, scattered uh, market. Mention is run by Mathieu, which you know, which is doing a great job. Our two last companies, which are Front App and uh, Aircall, have been growing much faster than our first batch of three companies. So they're behind because they're they're three years later, but the pace at which they develop and the, the, the quality of the co-founders and the, the, the venture capital people uh, around these projects is just amazing, which is promising for us. And I couldn't say that I'm not very keen on having a spend desk, uh, Forest and Min, Illustrios, proud out in the community. I wouldn't be as enthusiastic or continue to do my job as if the new children are not as... Hmm, sure. Uh, it shouldn't be better than, uh, you know, when you have a third child, it, it should be... Uh... Well, starting to develop nicely. It's a good portfolio already. Um, so in general, we have um, SaaS talk coming up, so the first dedicated SaaS conference in Europe. But then if you look at the numbers, and we do a lot of that um, at TechEU, I look at the data, a lot of the most successful companies coming out of Europe are SaaS companies. Well, why do you think that is? Why is Europe so good at SaaS? Or is it a false assumption? I don't know if it's a false or right assumption. Um, I'm, I'm not into data as you are. I thought we were quite good on e-commerce uh, activities and stuff also overall. 
It might be that if I reflect on myself and why I like SaaS companies, it's that it's less glamorous, it's less original because you, you, when you do a successful SaaS, you work on a pain point of a company, right? It's, I might use a word in Dutch that you will understand, but it's gezond boerenstand. There's something that you need to common do, sense. which is common sense. There is a problem and, so, and it's unsexy to do SaaS, right? It's not as sexy as doing other stuff. So when you have people who would like to work on a problem that you can sufficiently be passionate about, that you execute it well, it's very iterative. Uh, you have um, a, a real learning curve. So into the entrepreneurial world, the negative part of SaaS is that it takes about a year to, to get something off the ground which builds sufficiently value that people pay for it, which is a burden in the lean startup world. But once you have that, there is a, a very nice opportunity to sell to B2B and there it's not fashionable, trendy or whatever. It's a pain point, it's identified, it's over the long run. And I think we were able to develop that very well. We are very good at internationalization, um, especially out of Belgium. Inceptionally, we sell abroad and we have high, high quality of engineers, uh, certainly compared to the, the, the hotspots in the US in, in cost to, to quality. All ingredients that for me are very great. And the fundamentals behind SaaS is that you can build now a software for everything. Even six years ago, people wouldn't have thought that we built dedicated SaaS for dentists or whatever. And it's, a huge, it's a huge opportunity and a huge business you can build out of it. So um, Software is eating the world, right? Quentin, um, thank you so much for explaining the model behind uh, eFounders and best of luck with the startup studio. See you at SaaS Talk. See you there. And finally, Robin, I can't wait to talk to you about this. The Wired Global 100 list is out with the world's so-called most influential people in tech. This is the first global list that Wired has published. There's obviously names like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, Paul Graham, Jack Dorsey, but also people you might not expect like Taylor Swift, the Pope, or even Caitlyn Jenner. There are quite a few Europeans on the list, actually. Margaret Vestager who's the European Commissioner for Competition. She was actually the best-ranking European at number seven. Other names on the list include some usual suspects, like Damis Sassavis, I hope I'm saying that right, from DeepMind, Zavignel from Iliad, Oliver Samware from Rocket, Brent Hoberman, Martha Lane Fox, some CEOs from companies like Yandex, Supercell, King Digital, they also made the list. Overall, I felt like Europe was actually really well represented, but Robin, what's your take on this list? Ah, good question. People love their lists. Uh, well, this is a very interesting one. Um, there's always a few people that I think strangely go missing. Uh, if you ask me, for example, um, the list includes Thomas Rabe, who's the chairman of Bertelsmann. Um, he gets a spotlight, but then the German media giant that I think is truly taking uh, a lot of risks and kicking ass in digital is Axel Springer, of which there is no one on Wired's list. And then you have folks like the, the founders of Rocket Internet Back Africa Internet Group is in the list or are in the list, because uh, it's a team of co-founders. But then there's no one from the red-hot European food delivery space. Uh, we keep reporting on, on these companies quite a lot, and we're not the only ones. But companies like Delivery Hero, Deliveroo, uh, HelloFresh, Takeaway.com. So none of the founders of these companies get a mention in the list, which I think is kind of odd. 
you see Spotify CEO Daniel Ek gets a mention, but then you can also argue that the founders of, of companies like Adyen or, or Klarna in Sweden uh, would deserve a place on the list. So and I can probably keep going. You can always come up with a few more names. But of course, Wired needs to make choices if they want to whittle down the list to 100 people. But yeah, so so to what I think you, your conclusion is right. Uh, Europe is well represented, uh, indeed. Uh, some usual suspects, you've already mentioned them. But there's also people on the list who I admire a lot. It includes Turkish entrepreneur and investor Sina Afra, who I think deserves a lot more recognition than he, than he does. UK-based angel investor and business expert Sherry Kutu, uh, same thing. She could use a little bit more attention, in my opinion. And then there's Vitalik Buterin. He's the young co-founder of Ethereum and Bitcoin magazine. He's only 22 years old. Um, and Telegram founder Pavel Durov is not mu- that much older and is really you know, making a difference in the world as well. So it should be interesting to see who makes it next year. I'm guessing I'm going to have complaints about names missing then again. But at the same time, I'm going to lobby hard for you, Roxanne, to be part of it. <laughs> I think we should all lobby very hard for you. But actually, one name that we didn't mention that we really should is actually Nicholas Zenstrom, who obviously he's one of the usual suspects, but he was also our person of the year 2015 and definitely a name that deserves to be on that list. Yes, I'm very happy that he made it, especially because it's not just an entrepreneur and investor, but also a very big philanthropist and a really nice guy as well. Um, so that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at tech.underscoreu. If you want to follow our individual accounts, it's at Roxanne Varza and at Robin Waters. I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you. Bye, Roxanne. Bye, Robin. Bye, Robin.